I, uh, I've been so blessed by so many of you guys that have um, sent me emails, and, and we've talked about some kind of controversial stuff, and I was, I was kind of always bracing. Like, every week I kind of say something that's like, ooh, I'm going to pay for that one later, you know? And, and it's, it's always been uh, really positive things, and, and the best part of receiving communication from so many of you is that you affirm the whole reason that we are going through this series, which is I've always thought that and believed that, and now I know it's a lie, and it's unlocked brand new revelation for who God really is. And that's the whole reason we're doing this, and so we um, are, are kind of sharing from an author named Darren Hufford, and he wrote this book called The God's Honest Truth that revolutionized my life, but it also offended me in such a way that I put down the book for two years. And tonight is the night I'm sharing on the topics that made me get so offended. But after I came back from it, I realized like, man, what am I trying to uphold? Like I got offended because I'm trying to defend, you know, someone who told me otherwise or I learned this in doctrine class or, or, or something of that nature. But it's so important that we don't waste any time in cleverness, in, in, in fun theology that fits for a church service that has no biblical basis and no truth to it. So get ready because we're gonna say a couple things that might question what we've previously believed. And as you know, we've been going through 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven, and just going verse by verse, word by word technically. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. That's where we've gotten so far in tonight. It does not boast and it is not proud. 1 John 4, 8, if you know, it says that God is love and we can understand everything about God by actually understanding love. And so we take this and we can say, God, you do not envy. God, you are kind. God, you are patient. God, you do not boast. God, you are not proud. So we're talking first about boasting and talk about boasting and pride. Boasting, the first thing, is that it actually is about exalting the highest truth about a person, a place, or a thing. Boasting is actually not lying. It actually is being truthful. It's, it's actually the truth that uh, you share, but the thing about boasting is it ultimately pushes other people down around you. And at least people feeling oftentimes like they're failures or maybe they don't measure up or at least they're inadequate. And boasting at its core produces comparison. And the result of comparison is that people don't feel like they add up to what you are sharing. And perhaps we don't think much about it. We're just like, oh, love does not boast. And maybe some of us are like, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's not like I have a great car or I have a great job or a lot of money. Like there's maybe a lot of us thinking like, well, there's not a whole lot for me to boast about, you know? Because we think about the traditional material things about it. But the most common boasting that all of us would be experiencing and understanding, propagating and knowing is actually Christian boasting, which is unintentional. And here's what I mean. It's about talking about your own faith in such a way that reduces faith of somebody else. Sometimes when we share our testimonies and we share about the grandness of, of what God's doing in our life, sometimes in our great effort and our, our great intention to be honest, we unintentionally make other people feel inferior. We unintentionally make people feel like they are spiritually deficient. And there's nothing so damaging and complicating to someone else's faith when they have listened to somebody else give a testimony or give a, about how their relationship with God is and then they compare it to themselves. And I wrestled this for so long is that somebody would say, yeah, you know, like, I woke up in the morning and poof, there's a big light and it's Jesus and, you know, he poured me half and half of my coffee. It was awesome. And, you know, I asked him about the bulls and he thought they had a good season coming. And I mean, you hear these things and it's hard not to like, 
like, well, whoa, like, I didn't have coffee with Jesus this morning, you know? And it's like, and, and people share things in such a way that actually kind of makes you feel like you're broken. And what happens in that instance is it makes many of us feel like failures. Have you ever tried something new and you just like sucked at it? Have you ever tried it again? <laughs> I mean, typically you don't. Like, if you're miserable at something, you're kind of like, well, that's not for me. And so Christian boasting, which is never intentional to make people feel bad or, or um, low about themselves, sometimes can. And I think more people have questioned the faith and gone away from the faith because we have such a, a lingo about Christianity that we, that we share with one another that, that it oftentimes makes people feel incapable of reaching that same place. And the thing that every single one needs to know here, and it's, it, it comes from a good heart, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't talk about what amazing things God is doing. That's great. What you haven't heard is that God is a creator, not a duplicator. What you haven't heard is that God is designing a specific way in which he wants to communicate to you that's equally as powerful, equally as relevant, equally as intimate. And it's not fair for us to look at someone else's relationship and hold that as the paradigm and that as a standard. I have very unique relationships in this room with so many people. And, and they all, for me, are like, they're wonderful. I'm fully satisfied. I love, I love them. But, but sometimes someone comes and like, well, I want to have a relationship that you have like with so-and-so. And it's kind of like, well, it's nothing against you. It's just like, you're not the other person. Like, we just have this dynamic that just is kind of our own. And there's nothing wrong about that. But I want to share with you that, that don't be afraid if someone gets up and shares something powerful, amazing, or, or an angle to their faith that seems to feel like you get pushed down because God is really saying, I made that for him, I have something else for you. If you would tap into me, if you would stop looking at somebody else and actually start looking at me, maybe I would reveal something to you that is so profound and so unique. Something kind of funny about me is um, I'm actually really musical. I, I never, hardly ever play, but I can't like read music. But I, I, I played worship for this, uh, this gospel church in Santa Barbara for a while on the keys. Worship would last for like five hours, right? And um, there was a particular person there that damaged my face so much. It's because he took issue in comparing what his spiritual strengths were to mine. And he said, we're gonna pray for you that you'd be imparted with this particular strength. And so we'd have prayer meetings and we would come around and, and it was like so intimidating to have someone say like, hey, you, you're deficient in this area. We're gonna rally people around. And it was like the most like burdening thing. And all it did was made me question that, that God really isn't me. I started questioning my salvation. It was so bad. And all the while, I had realized that I can't read music. I'm self-taught, but I can compose on the fly. And for me, that was worship. That though I can be spontaneous in music and, and feel totally edified in my spirit and, and feel totally connected with God, but yet that didn't measure up on the scale. And so it took me a while to be okay that when I connect with God, sometimes music and inspiration and creativity and writing music is just as powerful as somebody in some closet or, or doing whatever. But it, it caused me to shy away so far from religion and so far from other really spiritual people, it took me so long to come back and to actually encounter God that he wants to have his own wiring because Jesus is not interested in duplicating what he's done in somebody else in you. 
I mean, we want to reach, we want to have the best, but, but God is like, when we're looking to somebody else for the exact standard and for the replication of it, God is not happy with that because God would rather have, have something fully unique for you. And the same thing with prayer. Like, I would go to prayer meetings, and after these prayer meetings, people would pray such grand prayers. Like, they'd start off, God in Obadiah chapter 17, verse 4, and James 17, 8, and, you know, they would, like, list nine scriptures before they say that you are good. You know, they would, like, reference everything. And they would go on, and they would crescendo up and down, you know, and, and I felt like a loser at that prayer meeting. I'm like... God, um, school sucks, um, help, you know, it was like the depth of my prayers. And, and Jesus even addressed this in Matthew 6, 7, says, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for many words. And the, the tendency in Christianity is to, especially when you have a microphone too, is that you are praying within the effort to impress the audience. I don't think God's honored by that. And so I just, I don't know where to go with that. I'm not going to go any further than, than that on that. But um, just to say that we, we need to know two things. One is that we celebrate every great God, amen? The second, we will all relentlessly pursue our unique and own uh, connection with God. But boasting has always been the anti-relationship and it has the effect of lowering everybody else. Now, why would we be drawn to boast about our faith or why would we uh, pray in such a way that pushes other people's down? And I think it's because we believe that God also boasts. Two remarkable examples about how God does not boast. The first is looking at the nature of how he came to the earth. It says that God came to be something lower than the angels to be with us. The, The God Almighty made himself a man for our sake. Hebrews 2.9 says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now Jesus could have come in like blazing glory, you know, like a, like a rocket ship lands and he's like, ta-da, you know, he's like, what's up now? You know, he's like, I'm here. He could have come like that, right? But he didn't. He came as a carpenter. I mean, the whole entire Old Testament's like giving declarations about this Messiah that's coming. Everybody thought that he was gonna come on like this Roman chariot with swords and you know, he's gonna do these crazy things. And here we have God, the creator of the universe, comes as a lowly carpenter. And he didn't even just come as a carpenter. His final act before he died a criminal's death was to wash the dirty, stinky feet of 12 men. Now, why didn't Jesus come in majesty and glory? Like, that always kind of bothered me. I think it's because sometimes glory and awe can disable relationship. Why did God, infinite glory, majesty, put himself as a lowly carpenter who, who washed the dirty feet? I think it's because God knows that our tendency to admire and to be starstruck by glory and awe actually disables relationships. Just think, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of somebody famous. Like, man, I, I'm sorry, I keep on going back to Michael Jordan. It's the only thing I got here. It's the only person that really would impress me that much. You know, it's like, you'd be like, um, uh, 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 you know, you're like sitting having like lunch with him or something. You're like, do you, do you like cheese? You know, like you, you can't think of anything to talk about. You can't even fathom having an authentic relationship with Michael Jordan because you're just like, 
Remember that time that you sunk that three? It was awesome. You know, like you just, you just can't get past the awe and the glory of being with someone famous, but it's known that celebrities are actually some of the loneliest people in the world. It's amazing how many celebrities, they'll, like, um, they'll marry perfect strangers because they can't have an authentic relationship without somebody being in awe who they are or wanting their money. And so it's like this trap of fame is that it produces such lowly people. But I think that Jesus knew that glory and awe would be a substitute for intimacy. And so to establish his relationship with us, I believe that he wanted to keep our eyes off the glory and awe and onto his heart. Because God wants to be intimate, but we must never let the magnitude of how grand and how glorious he is ever get in the way of his heart. God is like, God is who he is. He's not boasting about how awesome he is. He just is, that, that, just by definition he is, but in the same essence, he doesn't want his glory and awe to keep hearts away from his heart. That's not his desire. And bottom line on that, God made himself a man so that we would know his heart. The second thing is the nature in which God, or Jesus, died for us. Think about this. Our whole entire existence is completely based, and our faith is all around one event, the cross. Everything, I mean, the whole entire book is pointing to the cross. Now, when you get to the story of the cross, what do you find? Out of this huge entire book, you find at most a paragraph. Isn't that odd? The whole entire point of all the faith like centers around the death of one man and it's basically limited to one paragraph in the longest translation. And the only reason it goes into such detail is it actually is making sure like these prophecies about the spear in the side and blood and water come forth and not a bone being broken. Like the only details that are shared are actually only to match up with the prophecies that God had already inspired. Now, God could have inspired the authors to write chapters of the pain and the agony and and, and the effects of taking the world's sin on him, because that's what Jesus did. He got on the cross, and he took the world's sin on him all at once. You think that we could have written a little bit more, maybe a page about that? That's kind of intense. But the level of detail was limited. Why? Let me give you an example or story, something. It'll be good. Imagine I wake up in the middle of the night, sound of a door breaking in. A man has come. He's like, I've come to kill you and your family. And I sit there and I beg and plead with him, please don't kill my family. And I, I, I beg and I was like, I convince him, let my wife and daughter go and have me. And let's say that he agrees to that, but he takes me into a back room and he pulls out a video camera and he tortures me after hours and hours and hours and then he kills me and videotapes it. Do you think that I would ever want Camilla, my daughter, ever to see that videotape? No. Do you think I ever want them to know the guilt and the shame that they would feel for letting me die on their behalf? I never saw the, the um, passion of the Christ, and now I'm never, I'm never going to. Why? It's, I feel gratitude to Jesus. I, I, I don't have a problem knowing that, man, he did amazing things for him, but I don't want to relive what he went through. That's my dad. 
I don't want to go and experience it. I don't think Jesus is glorified by us feeling the weight and the detail of the gore that he endured. A powerful movie, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but I'm just, I'm questioning would a loving father really get glory out of us knowing every bloody detail? Would he be inspired by the story that was told from it? I don't think so. Because I think the level of of detail that we get, we, we don't actually see it as it is. When it's somebody that we love, we actually feel guilt. We feel burden, don't we? that every painful attribute of the cross actually marks up another score on our scorecard that we need to repay. I think God limited the story of the crucifixion because he doesn't want to boast. He doesn't want us to know the guilty details and the gory details because guilt is not a godly motivator, amen? Guilt is never a godly motivator. I had somebody like question me on that on Facebook. It was kind of a fun exchange. but. We sing songs like, I'll never know how much, you know, the, the price you paid on the cross. I'm not going to sing the whole thing for you. Um, but you know that song? Well, I think that God's mentality is like, not only will you never know because it's impossible, but I think Jesus is like, I took the price tag off. There, I don't even want you to look. You know, have you ever received like a gift and, uh, you know, someone has like left the price tag on, you know, so you know it was like an expensive gift. And then you see like clearance on it and you're like, oh, that's a lame gift, you know. <laughs> but I think God really desired to take the price tag off. So like if, if you're calculating the cost, I'm sorry. If you're calculating the cost, then you are storing up guilt for yourself. I think Jesus wanted us to focus on not on the cross, but what happened because of the cross. He's like, the only reason I mention it is for the prophecies, but I want you not to focus on the pain and the agony. I want you to be focused on the life that was released, the reconciliation that happened at the cross. God never boasts about what he went through to reconcile you. He'll never partner with Satan in using guilt to bring you back to him. It's not part of his nature, it's not part of his character, and it's demonic. There's no part of God that desires any guilt in you. But sometimes we feel like we gotta repay the cross, right? But if we try to repay the cross, it actually nullifies the gift. If someone gives you a gift, and then, am I still on? I'll try this. I don't get to use hands as much now, darn it. <laughs> but if someone gives you a gift and then they send you a check in the mail, sorry, if you give someone a gift, let's get this right, and then they send you a check in the mail, wouldn't you totally feel like the gift was like, not a gift anymore? It's like, well, I didn't sell it to you. But sometimes our efforts to repay God for what he did for us actually, I think, is tarnishing the gift. The next thing about God is not proud, or love is not proud, and the essence of pride is about not needing anything or anybody. Pride it can be deduced to that simple statement that you don't need anybody, you don't need anything, that you're fully self-sufficient. It's also about closing the heart. Pride closes the door of the heart and never allows anyone else to enter. It's not the same as someone shutting their heart due to pain or insecurity, but prideful people honestly believe that they don't need to be touched on a heart level. They believe that they don't need anybody. And religion inspires people to pride. 
Religion inspires people to pride so that they will not need anybody else. There is something about religious leaders that as they grow further in their competencies, they need less and less of the people around them. Have you noticed that? Because there's this pressure in faith that if I have Jesus, then I shouldn't have problems. If I have Jesus, I don't have needs. We would never have, uh, like you don't take a congregation who's looking to install like a head pastor and the first thing he gets up there and talks about all his needs. He's like, I'm a broken man, I have this addiction, I have that. He'd be like run out of the congregation, right? Because the person who's at the front of the the pulpit, they should have it all put together. If a pastor or a religious leader says that they have needs or they have struggles, it's like saying, well, shouldn't you be in the pew and not the pulpit? But religion creates this, this drive that says that you need to be qualified to lead by perfection. But how many times are we turning on the news and finding some major religious leader that confesses to a vice of 10, 20 years? All because they feel that any weakness, any need would have disqualified them from leadership. What kind of statement does that make for us? But it maintains this obligation that leaders need to have this perfect exterior while all the hearts and souls of them are dying on the inside. And the lie we believe is that true godliness ministers to people without needing anything in return. Let me say that again, that we believe that true godliness ministers to people without needing anything in return. That true godly people give and they never need to receive. And this is the same thing, all of us struggle this on a a level, is that it's not okay to have needs if we're spiritually strong. It's like, well, you know, that was for when you're immature, but the farther you go in your relationship with God, it doesn't feel like it's okay anymore to actually be real with where you're at. After all, if you're close to God, you wouldn't need anything else, right? But I think we believe that God is proud. Now, how do we believe God is proud? Have you ever wondered why God created us? We talked about this just a little bit last week. Remember talking about, did God make you, you know, for, for his glory? Like, we can't contribute to his glory. His glory just is what it is. You know, but how about... Um, did he create us to, to show off? Well, we know that God doesn't boast, and so he's not like, you know, showing off to anybody that doesn't see his plain nature. You know, so it's not about boasting there. But what about worship? We didn't talk a ton about worship, but let me just rephrase this, because worship is something we're focusing really hard on in this season of Epic Life, because worship is so key. And I think that sometimes we switch our wires on the purpose of worship. And the purpose of worship is the consummation of a covenant. God did not create us to worship him. And and the main reason we were not created for worship is that anything besides worshiping him becomes obedience. God is like, if we were made to, to worship and that was all we were made to do, then everything we do besides worship is rebellion to God. So that's not gonna work. But our salvation is the covenant. The salvation is what eternally secures our relationship, our connection with God forever. And worship is the intimate exchange that we share after that covenant and that we continue to share. It is something that God desires, but he desires only after first the marriage. So God will not desire worship from someone he's not in covenant with. Someone who can come in here and they can sing the songs, but if they're not in covenant with God, it doesn't actually mean anything. Because it's about a heart-to-heart connection. 
The worship is what we do in celebration, in recognition of the covenant. It is what connects our hearts. When our hearts are ministered to God, or our hearts are ministered by God, and I believe that he's ministered by us too. If you don't believe that your worship has an impact on the heart of God, then you're worshiping for the wrong reason. We authentically need to believe that our worship touches the heart of God. But when we say that God created us just for worship, it's as offensive and vulgar as me telling my wife that I married her for sex. It's the same exact thing. If a relationship is just about the physical, it will not survive. It'll just be about physical gratification. But worship is authenticated by knowing God and him knowing you. Otherwise, worship is empty singing of empty songs to an empty relationship of an empty God. Are you guys with me? And what I found is that you ultimately worship what you know. You do. That's why we're trying to focus in on, do we actually really know God? Because what we think and believe about God is actually what we're worshiping. And so if we're wrong in that department, our worship's going to be wrong. And if you believe in your heart that God is prideful, then you will not give him authentic worship. Because when you believe God is prideful and you are only made to worship, the worship you offer, you're going to give only because God expects it from you. You're going to worship with a reluctant heart because you think that God really, you owe God for it because this is what you're made here for. And I think it's dishonoring. I think we totally missed the point. And people that have a hard time connecting worship, I hear this all the time, like, I just have a hard time connecting worship. Well, it's like, well, before we talk about music, lights, and ambience, and all those different things, like, who are you connecting with? People who have a hard time connecting worship don't have a hard time with worship. They have a problem with what they're connecting to. I genuinely believe we can't give our heart to prideful people. When someone is prideful and someone is boasting and someone is of that nature, we would never in a million years like settle for the ways in which they lower us, in which they crawl over us, in which they make us feel obligated. And if we feel that we can't connect with worship, maybe it's because we have a hard time identifying what we're actually connecting with. So we know that God created us for a relationship, but why? And the answer may shock you and offend you. This is the part that caused me to close this book and just like, this thing's garbage. And it required me to completely change every preconceived notion, every belief that I've had about God. And it goes against everything we've ever learned and ever been taught about God. I really believe that God created us. Now I believe this. I didn't believe this before. But I really believe that God created us because he had a need. That God had a need. We've believed our entire lives that God was fully self-sufficient, didn't need anything, was fully contained, and was in of himself fully satisfied. But we have to like look and wonder, like, why did God go through extraordinary circumstances, sending himself as a man to die a, a criminal's death on a cross for us? Could it be that God was unfulfilled, that he had a need that needed to be ministered to, that, that the need compelled him to put himself on the line and become totally vulnerable for us because God didn't have to come in the way he did? Now, why should that surprise us? We were created in his image. We've also have the same need. We have the same exact need for relationship, a need to be known, a need to have desire to share ourselves with one another. Tragic story. King Frederick II, a big Roman Empire in the Middle Ages. He wanted to do an experiment. 
And he wanted to see when children were born, if you did not talk to them, if you did not make eye contact with them, if you did not recognize them, if you didn't interact with them, but you just met their needs and bathed them and fed them, what would happen? And he wanted to find out what was their native language in them. Would they speak the, the language of their parents? Or would they speak Arabic or Greek or Latin? Like what was in them? And so he took all of these, these babies and he put them in this, this foster care and they were instructed not to interact with the children at all. And in four months, every single one of the children died. It's hard for us to accept that God would have a genuine need for us. Because the concept that God needed anything never crosses our mind. It's offensive to our minds, isn't it? But if God wanted more worship, he would create more beings with a hundred eyes on their heads, with seven wings and all these things. Like if he needed more of that, he, would, he just would create it. And if he needed more glory, he would do something of even greater stature of universes. We have no idea when we look around the universe, it's like everything declares his glory. I think he did a pretty good job in that department. But we have learned from the slide that God doesn't need anything. It doesn't feel good to have someone say, I don't need you. That doesn't draw you in. If God is really after authentic relationship with you, how can we accept the statement that God doesn't need you? That statement kind of like repulses us, doesn't it? Doesn't that, that like string your heart like to say, Dale, I don't need you. I'm just here because you're here. And I'm going to survive it while you're here. I mean, it, it doesn't like, whoa, we're like, brothers now, like, wow, speak to my heart, you know? And maybe it's because that needs are, remember, how religion drives pride, it eliminates any needs, that pride is what's killing our ability to be okay with needs. And if we say that God is not proud, and pride, again, is self-sufficiency, needing nobody could it be that God actually needs us? It's kind of a radical thought. Even just stating it, it just is like, wow, that's so counter to everything I've ever believed in. But that's because maybe we've been told that God is in it only for himself. If we took the things we said about God and we put them on a person we worked with, we would hate that person. Honestly, if we took all the personality traits that we commonly share about God, about the things he does, and he gives people sickness to teach them a lesson, and, and he does these things, and he, he, he requires people to worship because that's why they're there. If we were to put that all in a human being, we would be so miserable with that person. And, you know, we would need accountability to be in a relationship with that person. We'd need accountability to talk to them. We'd need accountability to, like, read their book. Wait, this is sounding familiar. When we understand that God desires you, he wants to have a relationship with you, suddenly the Bible doesn't sound repulsive anymore. Suddenly we don't need accountability to make sure that we read our 10 verses. Suddenly things begin to change. And there's a need element in relationships that we often forget. I'm going to close with this if we can have the band come up. There's an element to love relationships that we often forget, and I believe that is needing and desiring each other. It'd be offensive for me to know that my wife looked at me as just simply fulfilling a role that she had. She's like, I need 
someone to pay the bills. That's why you're here. Like, how offensive to my heart would that be? And likewise, if I were to say the very exact same thing about her, if I were to reduce her relationship and her heart simply to fulfilling a role, but we've lost the element of love that says, I need you, I desire you, and we've, it's become such an offensive term when we actually put that on the heart of God. But as I begin to piece all these components together that God genuinely wants your heart, I believe that in that is the statement that God says, I need you, I want you, I desire you. When you consider all the ways in which he put himself out to make himself available to us in a way that we could connect it's too much effort to say that I just needed more Christians that wore my badge or to fly my flag. God did too much in order for us to have right relationship with him that is a good father, not a compulsive, manipulating father. It was too much. And maybe we just need to know that it's okay that God needs us, that God wants us, that God desires you. It's a magical element in relationships that causes it to flourish. You will, you'll put into a relationship as much as you feel that you're wanted. If you don't feel wanted, you're not going to put in nearly the effort and in relationships. And maybe isn't that the big lie that throughout all the scriptures and, and all the things that as I read now, I see it, but, but the simple truth that God wants you that he needs you, that he is desiring your heart. He doesn't, he doesn't desire your offering. He doesn't desire your job. He doesn't desire these things. He just wants your heart. And when we do that, it like suddenly, for me, it just changes things. And, and I don't know about you, if that doesn't like flip your switch, then you don't got a switch. <laughs> Other than that, we're just, we're, we're playing church. We're, we're playing roles. We're marking off a scorecard. We're, we're keeping track. We're being accountable to being in a place that keeps us from sinning because honestly I believe like ministries like this I think so many of them exist just for the fact of like okay we know they're not drinking now we need to have services that go longer because we don't want them to stay out too late you know it's like it feels like such a letdown but if, if we're not encountering the heart of God then we're wasting our time and if we took everything that we know about faith and now put it through the lens that God desires you, that, that he is incomplete without you, like I'm incomplete without my wife. We put that lens on it and understand his heart for us like that. I think we wind up in a, a whole new place in our faith. Are you guys with me? Let's stand and pray.